Hey, leaders and managers, Marcel here. If you haven't heard, my leadership development course is now in full swing and it's getting great reviews. It's called From Boss to Leader. And if you like the theme of the podcast, hey, you're going to love this course. It's intended for emerging leaders and managers that want to learn real leadership competencies, the everyday stuff that you need in order to engage and inspire and motivate your team for a high performance. I'd love to personally speak with you and get to know your current situation to see if you're a good fit for the course. To learn more about the From Boss to Leader course, visit my website, marcelschwantes.com, and click on Virtual Training. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, and thank you for dropping in. I'm grateful that you chose to spend time with us today. I want to flashback for a minute to episode 55, and uh, I'm doing so to give you some context about how special today's episode is. So back in episode 55, I had Stephen M. R. Covey on the show. That's the best-selling author, Stephen M. R. Covey, who is the son of arguably the greatest leadership thinker and author of all time. Yes, I'm biased, and that would be the late... Stephen Covey, who left this earth too soon back in 2012. So I brought Stephen in to talk about the 30th anniversary edition of his dad's masterpiece, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Chances are pretty good that you have a copy of that book sitting somewhere in your bookshelf, as do I. So that 30th anniversary edition, by the way, had new insights added in by another son, of Stephen Covey, Sean Covey, the president of Franklin Covey Education. So it just so happens that Stephen Covey had another book he was working on that he never completed when he passed until now. And this is such a unique family affair because, well, there are so many Covey kids in the family, nine of them, in fact. And, And this new book, Stephen Covey's final book, is also co-authored by his oldest daughter, author, teacher, and speaker, Cynthia Covey-Heller. The book is called Live Life in Crescendo. Your most important work is always ahead of you. So near the end of his life, Stephen Covey felt there was a, a final component to his work, you know, to answer the big question, how do we live our best life no matter what age or what stage of life we're in. So if you have hard questions about life, about leadership, career success, parenting, maybe even aging or taking care of your elderly parents or overcoming some kind of adversity, or maybe your question right now as you near the end of your career may be, what's next for me? This is a book that will provide you with answers to life's biggest questions. And yes, this is a family affair indeed. I am grateful that Cynthia Covey Haller graciously accepted our invitation to come on the show. And she now joins us. Welcome, Cynthia, to the Love in Action podcast. 
Thank you so much, Marcel. I've looked forward to being on this show for months as we discussed. So I'm so happy to be here. Yes, likewise. It's so thrilled to have you on. And I'm, I was just thinking that anytime a Covey kid writes a book, they're going to be on the show from now on. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> We've got one gig at least. <laughs> <laughs> so we start with uh, this traditional question to kind of connect our guests with with the listeners. Now, I asked your brother this question too, and I, I think it has special significance because, well, here you are, another one of Covey's kids. So I'm curious how you're going to answer this. You ready? <laughs> sure. What's your story? Well, that's a broad open question, isn't it? <laughs> But um, I'm the oldest of nine kids. And so, like you said, Marcel, that's a lot of kids. <laughs> my parents, I was, I was uh, 22 and a half when my youngest brother, Joshua, was born. Wow. And so my parents always wanted a large family. And it was awesome growing up in our home because it was wild and crazy. <laughs> always something to do, someone to play with. Some, you know, someone to talk to. You, it was not quiet. <laughs> and it was uh, it was an adventure. I don't know. I think my story would be that um, I grew up in a in a in a great family that but wasn't a perfect family. Same as everybody else's. I mean, we had problems and struggles like everybody. And uh, we tried to to find our way and, and get along and make things happen in our family. But um, sometimes Sometimes we'd have to, you know, recreate it. Sometimes we'd start over. I always admired that my parents would apologize to us if they made a mistake. If one of them lost their temper, got mad, overreacted, as you can imagine would happen with nine kids. I have six kids of my own, so I know it's 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 hard to be a parent. It's the hardest job and something you're never released for your whole life. And so they tried more than anyone I knew to live what they taught and to practice what they believed. And when they'd fall short, they would apologize to us and start over. And, and it was a good model to me that, you know, you're not, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to, you're going to fall short sometimes, but if you own it, take responsibility and start over, you know, it's great. And relationships are the most important things. And uh, we, that was emphasized a lot in our family that they're more important than things. They're more, more important than friends um, our relationships and our family were were crucial to who we became, I think. And, and so now I have six children. I have 21 grandkids. <laughs> That's my main thrust in life is my family. And I just have this great opportunity that I'll I'll share with you kind of the backstory soon of of being um, you know, all of a sudden I'm I'm writing my dad's final book. And what a journey that's been for me. A wonderful, wonderful one. And let's get right to that backstory because I can't wait. But before you do that, I just want to make sure that my listeners know that if they're just sort of like wanting more about your personal life, your relationship with your dad, don't worry, folks. We're going to come back to Cynthia talking about growing up as a Covey kid and her relationship with that. So just hang tight. Hang tight for a few more minutes. And we'll get to that. But let's talk about the book. All right. So your dad passed away. Uh, what, 10 years ago? 10 so, years ago, July. Yeah. And you have quite the backstory about how this book came about. Please share what that, what that is. Okay. Well, um, the backstory is uh, some kind of a big faux pas I made, but maybe it was a good thing it happened. But one day I stupidly asked my dad, hey, are you going to write anything as good as Seven Habits? 
<laughs> is this is this you know kind of your best the best that you've ever going to write and is this kind of it and uh not meaning to that you know kind of insulted him he just thought am i one and done <laughs> is everything that i have that i've that i believe in and that my ideas all contained in the seven habits you know and so it got me thinking he, he said i still have important things ahead of me um, I still have a lot of ideas in my head, a lot of books in my head, projects and things I'm working at. And I feel like my best stuff is still to come. And that really kind of impressed me that he didn't think he's not going to rest on his laurels and think, OK, I wrote seven habits. I'm I'm done. I'm set for life. That's all I've got. And uh, he wrote, you know, he wrote it, um, you know, it came out in his, you know, when he was when he was older, 51 and so, but it was true. He 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 published the third alternative. He published the eighth habit. He contributed to other books, and then he talked to me about this last. Um, we didn't know this was going to be his last big idea, but his personal mission statement, the last ten years of his life, was live life in crescendo. And I think that came about because people were always saying to him. Boy, Steve, you're you're in your late sixties. You're in your seventies. You're going to hang it up anytime, or how long are you going to keep working? You're going to retire soon. And in in our family, it, the, it was called the it was the R word, retire. It was a bad word. <laughs> you didn't say retire. He didn't believe in retirement, <laughs> and uh, I'll explain that later. But anyway, he he always felt like, why should I? Why should I stop? I have passion for what I doing. I'm doing. I feel like I'm making a difference and an impact. I still enjoy it. it keeps me alive. Keeps me going. You know, why would I stop now? And so that, uh, what we call later in the book, I'll talk about the second half of life. That's kind of what perpetuated all of this, wanting to write about living life in crescendo. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of living life in crescendo. Now, I'm not a musician, but talk to us about the musical symbol crescendo, which I saw throughout the first few chapters. I mean, what is what does it mean in relation to to the book's message? Okay, um, it's an important part. Uh, my dad wasn't musical either. <laughs> so, uh, you know, our family, my mom sang, she sang beautifully, but not very many of us had musical talent. But um, crescendo is, as you know, a musical symbol. If you've gone to a concert, when music comes to a crescendo, it's fantastic. It builds, it has energy and passion, and, it, you know, it just fills the arena or whatever you're, you're, wherever you're listening. And it has a lot of power and strength, and it keeps getting louder, keeps getting stronger. And so the, 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 the shape of the crescendo starts at a point and, and spreads out. So the opposite is diminuendo, and that's the exact opposite of crescendo. It starts slowing in strength and power and energy. It starts winding down and going very slow, and, so, and it eventually comes to a stop. And so this musical symbol, crescendo and diminuendo, is, is my, my father is using it to teach about the crescendo mentality, which means that we should always be learning and growing and reinventing ourselves and and striving to do more rather than the opposite having our feeling like our best days are behind me. He always talked about don't look in the rearview mirror at what you've accomplished, what you've done. Look ahead. And so um that's the crescendo mentality. Yeah, maybe you can expect this might be that that moment where you can expand on on your dad living 
his own crescendo or having his own crescendo mentality. I mean, near the end of his life, because like you said, the R word <laughs> was <laughs> was not in his vocabulary. And I believe he was 79 at his passing. Is that right? Yes, he was. Where most people have hung it up by then. Right. Yeah. And yeah, my, he he left us much too soon. And I, I talk about it at the end of the book and kind of talk about a few things that happened with that that haven't really been been revealed before, but something we felt our family should share. But I'm just thinking about how my um, my father set the example in this by uh, constantly, he was always learning. He was always reading. In fact, it used to really annoy my mom because he would like, wherever he was in a cab, or, um, you know, um, just meeting someone new or meeting meeting anybody in a profession. If there were, someone was fixing something at our home or something, he would just like pick their brain to see what they knew, what they believed and what they what they felt about something. Um, as, and my mom would always say, why do you always act like you don't know anything? <laughs> and, he's, and he'd say, well, I know what I know, but I want to learn what they know. I want, I want to, I want to learn more. And he was constantly, all, you know, reading everybody's books and learning from that. But the example I'm thinking of, um, to share about a midlife, and I don't know if he would have called it this, um, just, just to backtrack for a second. My assignment was to take, to interview my dad about live life in crescendo, which I did for a few years. This was clear back in like 2008. And, uh, interview him and get his ideas. And then um, I was to provide, he wanted a lot of inspiring stories and examples of people that lived in crescendo, that practiced this crescendo mentality. And, you know, a few that lived in diminuendo, so people could see the opposite. And so at 51, he was teaching at a university for 20 years and enjoying it. And um, it was one of the, he wouldn't have said this, but I could tell you, it was one of the most popular classes on campus. Everybody felt like you had to take the class or you didn't get a degree there. And so it was organizational behavior. And he felt kind of a stirring that uh, maybe there's more, you know, kind of looking ahead, the second half of that, that subtitle, most important work is always ahead. He kind of felt like, I love what I'm doing. He was always a teacher at heart, but I feel like there's something more I should be about right now. And so he was, he was at that point, um, doing, just wanted to do a little consulting with some organizations because he'd give this material, which eventually became the seven habits to his students. And although maybe they they liked it, they didn't have a real uh, marketplace to practice it in. They didn't have a, a, a application as much as out in the workplace. And so he um, decided he was going to leave with nine kids, um, a secure job as a professor. And you don't make a lot of it as a professor, but at least you have goods insurance and it's secure and go out into the unknown and start his own consulting company, which became Stephen Covey and Associates. And so he did that at 51. <laughs> he did that later on in his life. And uh, he decided that he was going to do that. My mom fully supported it and, you know, stepped out and started speaking to organizations. And eventually Seven Habits was, was published and it became a good move for him. But in the meantime, he put his house in Hawk and uh, we all kind of tightened our belts and he took this you know, trying to figure out, I, I feel like there's more I should contribute. And if he hadn't have done that, 
um, he never would have reached the millions of people that his books have reached and had the influence he did. Mm, mm. So I want to, I'm, I'm intrigued by life stages and we, as human beings, you and, and your dad <clears throat> have identified four stages in life. And I, I'd like you to put the listener into one of those stages so they can kind of identify with it where they are. Right. So walk us through each one of those. Okay. There's lots of stages and we just, um, just kind of started. I mean, there's younger stages too, but we just kind of started where we saw some people struggling. And one of these was the midlife stage where people feel like, um, they might be stagnant in a job. They may be in a dead, uh, relationship in their marriage that's, that, that's not good, that is not healthy. And, or maybe they don't have good relationships with their kids. Maybe they feel like kind of this, the midlife seems to be when people wake up at 50 or so and think, what have I done with my life? <laughs> Am I where I wanted to be at this stage? Is this where I saw my life going? And sometimes people have a crisis there. And as we all know, it's called the midlife crisis where they flip out and, and leave their family and do crazy things and dress like a teenager and kind of, you know, do whatever to kind of, um, you know, deal with it. And so um, he, we talk about in the book uh, two perspectives in the midlife stage. And the first one is that see success for what it truly is, which he's defined as being successful in your most important roles without comparison to others. Society judges success as money and prominence and power influence. And while that he calls um, secondary greatness, primary greatness is your character and the roles that are important to you, being successful to them and uh, being responsible in those. And so um, in the book, I just, we just the um, story everyone's familiar with George Bailey, who, who did, didn't think he was successful at all, you know, thought I haven't done anything. Cause I, I want, he wanted to leave Bedford Falls, the little dumpy town and spread his wings and become an architect and build bridges. And he was stuck in this savings and loan, but he didn't realize how much it meant to the town, how he helped all those people around him have homes and have, have jobs. And, and so anyway, uh, you know, the story of, of how he finally, you know, realizes the angel shows him, boy, you left a big hole. You weren't there to save your brother. You weren't there to save these people from ruin. Uh, you weren't there to be a friend to so many and look what's happened to the town. And so his, his brother toasts him to the, to the biggest man in town at the end, which was true because he was, he realized, you know, he was successful. He did have a wonderful life. He didn't recognize it. So that's the first perspective. Um, see true success for what it is without comparison to others and be successful in your most important roles. And the second is if you do find you're in a rut, if you hate your job or you feel like you're not utilized in, in what you're doing, your, your boss doesn't appreciate your talents and hasn't utilized them, make a change, take responsibility uh, for your life and act. I'm thinking of a man that um, lost his, he started a business and all of a sudden uh, his partners several years down the road kicked him out of it. And he was, he was hitting toward 50. He was 47 without a job with four kids and, and had to find a new, didn't know what he was going to do. He decided he looked deep. You have to kind of be introspective and think, what am I good at? What do I have a passion about? He realized he always liked, he wanted to always go to law school. He never did. He went into business. So at 47, he enrolls in law school, the oldest man in his class. 
And he tells about one morning pulling into the parking lot, five in the morning, it's pitch dark, it's freezing cold, middle of winter, and doom and despair um, overcomes him. And he thinks, what am I doing? I've got years of law school ahead of me, and I can't make any money right now. And, you know, I don't know if I can do this. And he decides to reach down deep and look ahead, think about what he what he's trying to accomplish, and goes year round for two and a half years, being the oldest person in the law school by 15, 20 years, and graduates at 49 and starts his own law firm. And within a year has more work than he can handle. And so sometimes if you're if your life, the second perspective is if you really do are stuck in a rut, if you aren't happy, if things aren't working out, take control, take what my dad called R&I, resourcefulness and initiative, and make it happen. Redefine yourself, start over, do what it takes to proactively change, you know, your direction and and make something happen that will make you happier. Yeah. And all the stories, by the way, there's so many inspiring stories throughout the book. You know, I'm thinking about the the young lady from the University of Colorado that did something really stupid. Uh, I don't know if you want to share that story, but how she lost her legs, both her legs. And, and you know, most people would, would basically right there, it's like, my life is over. And to her, she pivoted. But I think that this really needs you need a mindset. So the crescendo mentality is really a mindset to see your life differently from, you know, perhaps losing your legs would mean for a lot of people, I can't operate normal in a, in a normal, high functioning way in society. My life is over. Right. But in her sense, now she inspires millions of kids by telling her story. I don't know. Is that a good a good uh, example? Yeah, it's a great example. Um, she was hopping trains. It was a it was tradition that they did up in Colorado in a in a in a university town, which was stupid to do, but kids do things like that. And she um she saw her friends, you know, her friends they'd done it for they get across town that way. And uh so you know, she she hopped on this train, but she didn't pull herself up far enough. And uh, she went right under the train and they just severed both her legs. And fortunately, there was a medic there right behind her that happened to be waiting for the train to pass and, and saved her life. And uh, she said it was it was a wake up call. She said, you know, I decided she said the first week I was miserable and I thought my life's over. What You know, she's living in diminuendo, thought I can't do anything. I my life has no options anymore. And then she decided, you know, the only thing I can't choose is whether or not I have my legs. Every, all the other choices are up to me. And she uh, Googled all these things she could do and went back to school and took up um, sports and did a lot of different things that caused her to meet, to speak to young kids and talk to them about follow your gut. Don't do stupid things. You know, listen to the voice inside you that tells you that that don't do that. That's dangerous. And um, you can make something of your life and, and handle that with humor. I'm also thinking of my my one of my favorite stories, if you don't mind me sharing, Marcel, that really shows the crescendo mentality. And you are right. It's a paradigm shift. It's a it's a new way of thinking, a new perspective about every age and stage of your life and handling the ups and downs that come. And my dad always said, if you want to make small changes in your life, work on your attitude. If you want to make large and primary changes, work on your paradigm. So this paradigm shift is is shown really um, readily in this man named uh, Anthony Ray Hinton, who was um, a man in his high 20s who was in a lockdown facility at work. 
and two murders were occurring across town. And somehow he got framed for them. He was accused of killing two people. And even though he passed a, a polygraph test and had a good alibi, he somehow was um, he was convicted of this horrible crime and sent to jail. He didn't he had faith. He was a good person, had faith that he would uh, justice would prevail. And he was just shocked. And then he fell into despair as he was uh, sent, sentenced to life in prison and also put on death row. He, was, he actually didn't get life in prison. He was in death row. So he was in his cell. He comes in and he's so despondent and full of despair. He's he's living in diminuendo. He shuts down. He throws his Bible under his bed. He decides if they're going to do this to me, I quit. He did, I'm not going to talk or speak or interact with anyone in the prison. I will speak to my, he decided to speak to his family and friends that visit him once a week. Other than that, he went stone cold, didn't interact with anyone for three long, miserable years. Living in diminuendo with no influence, no relationships, no power to do anything. And so one night, two in the morning, he hears a room uh, inmate on death row next to him that's sobbing and asking, begging for someone to please help him with the pain he has. And so he, something awakens in Ray, and he and he realizes he's shocked. He said, "It rocked me to realize I can't choose if I'm here on death row, but I have other choices. Hate and despair are a choice, but so are compassion and love." And so he breaks his three years of silence and asks what's wrong with this with this man that's sobbing and finds out that his mother, he just got word that his mother had passed away. And he was so devastated and full of despair, he didn't think he could hang on. So Ray spends the night speaking to a total stranger, comforting him, helping him, giving him hope to go on, talking about his mother, laughing and talking about old experiences and things his mother would do for this man. And from that moment on, he pivoted. He was living in diminuendo. He, he's, he chose to live, to exercise the small choices that he did have on death row until they grew and his circle of influence increased. He became a light and a beacon to his inmates uh, who would come to him for advice. Even the guards who respected him would come for, uh, for advice. He grabbed his Bible, dusted it off under his bed and decided, I'm a good person. I'm going to be found innocent and did what he could, used his R&I resourcefulness and initiative to make it happen, to get out of prison and prove his innocent um, status. So he, he eventually got the help of Brian Stevenson, who is the Just Mercy lawyer, the one for just Equal Justice Initiative. And he took, he ended up taking his case before the Supreme Court of the United States and was found innocent of all charges. But this had been almost 30 years, Marcel. He comes out of prison. He's released out of 30 years after 30 years. And he comes out and he sees his family and friends. And he says, the sun does shine. And he, this became the title of a, a New York best time selling book that he wrote four years later that um, tells of his journey from basically diminuendo to crescendo, living in crescendo. Now he works with Brian Stevenson as a, as an equal justice lawyer. Um, he speaks with him. He's an advocate for those falsely imprisoned. He, he is powerful. His influence is spread across the whole United States and maybe even the world. And so it was true. Like the book, his most important work was still ahead of him. He, his quote is, they took my 30s, my 40s, my 50s, but what they couldn't take was my joy. And so that shows that shows a man living in diminuendo 
and then choosing to live in crescendo. And now he is an influence throughout the world. Yeah. And for even ordinary people out there, you know, it's always, it comes down to choice. And I think that I'm also going to say this and tell me if maybe this has, if if this speaks to you, belief. We have the power to change how we believe in certain people if they choose crescendo, it is a belief system that I can, you know, I can make the best out of a worse, a bad situation and live life to the full, or you can go the other direction. Right. And in the same way that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where you could easily go down the path of despair and regret and, and just kind of shrivel up and die. Basically. You're right. That's exactly, it is a choice. And we all have, we all have setbacks. We all have, hard things. If you haven't had one yet, you haven't lived long enough. So we all will face really difficult things. And so I think you have to ask yourself, what is this going to look like? If I'm living in diminuendo right now, if I'm shutting down like Ray did, if I'm not, if I'm not trying, if I'm giving up, what's my life going to look like in five years? Where am I going to end up? And the opposite, you know, all right, this, this, you know, I, I have cancer. My, my parent died. Um, I got divorced. These, um, I've lost my home. How am I going to react to that? You can't choose your what happens to you, but you can choose your response to what happens to you and exercise that. And as you do, your circle of influence increases and soon the sun comes out again and you, you'll have some opportunities to make a difference again. Yeah. And that's what I love about so many of your stories is that they all they they not all of them, but many of them actually chose the path of diminuendo first and then and then pivoted and came back the other way. Uh, and and made a difference in in the world. So I love it. Now, what about a person? Speak to the 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 say the you know somebody that has reached the pinnacle of success. Okay, they're at the end of their career and and they're thinking about slowing down, maybe transitioning to the uh oh R word, <laughs> right? And uh and I don't know. And you know those, you think of those thoughts, the R word. You know, go to some warm state like Florida, play golf, and enjoy the grandkids. <laughs> so, what did your dad say we need to do at sort of at this stage of life, where maybe we've seen it all and done it all? Pinnacle of success. You've been, you've been, like you say, you've been successful. So what are your choices? Are you, like you say, you're going to rest on your laurels and do, and do nothing thinking I've built a, an empire. I've already accomplished a lot. So now I can relax. Um, my dad likes to quote, uh, Dr. Selvi in the stress of life that talks about you need stress in your life. There's distress, which isn't good stress for you, but there's also you stress which is the beneficial kind of stress. And that's the stress that you need every day, uh, the use stress to have purpose in life, to have meaning, to contribute to others' lives. So the first part of the book is developing the crescendo mentality. The second part of the book is really about contribution. Uh, what contributions are you going to make with what you have? Some people have um, a lot of options because they have, if they haven't reached the pinnacle of success, somebody like Melinda Gates I just read her book, The Moment of Lift, and she talks about going to underprivileged uh, countries. And here she's a billionaire. She's 
you know, reached the pinnacle of success and and started the uh, Gates Foundation with her husband, with Bill, who have since been divorced, but they have decided to still work on this foundation together. And she lives in this third world country for a couple weeks with her kids in tents or in whatever they have in the situation and decides, I want to get to the bottom of some of these problems, why there is extreme poverty, and finds that um, by empowering women and changing some cultural things in their community can make such a difference. So somebody like, um, say that you I, I t- tell a story about a man named Carl Raber, um, who was an Austrian who was made a lot of money. And he said in interior design, and he said he was always taught that this is kind of the path you take to obtain happiness. You work really hard your whole life. You give your life to your work. And then you, um, you know, that brings you happiness. He said, I, you know, I lived this life. He called it the uh, five star soulless existence for many years until I saw the poverty in some of these countries that I was uh, hang gliding in. And, and saw the happiness that they had from little things and that I was miserable. He said I was miserable in this five-star lifestyle because he wasn't contributing. He did something extreme and basically sold most of his possessions and decided to live pretty humbly and started micro uh, doing the microloan like Mohammed Yunus, doing microloans for people in third world countries, lending them a tiny bit of money so these people wouldn't have to pay to the loan sharks and they could make a living. And he said, for once, I felt free and truly happy, free of his possessions, but were con- controlling him because he had purpose in his life. My father taught that life is about contribution, not accumulation. Most people spend their life and, you know, get caught up in what society, you know, says is successful is accumulate a lot. But most people that are successful, if they don't start serving other people and do it all along, they'll find that, you know, they don't have much meaning and purpose in their life. They don't have that use stress. And so he's encouraging people at the pinnacle of life like Jimmy Carter, who didn't get uh, reelected his second term. What did he do? Go home to Plains, Georgia and, and just build a library? No, he's the face of Habitat for Humanity. He and Roslyn, he's, he's the greatest post-president we've ever had, but his presidency is rated pretty low. His greatest work was truly ahead of him in humanitarian work. And look at him in his 90s. He's, he's he had cancer and he's still contributing. He realized that life is about contribution, even though he reached the pinnacle of success, president of the United States, the highest office in our land. And yet his greatest work was ahead of him. Mm. Speak to the ordinary person, because it's, you know, most of us are not going to be the Melinda Gates. We're not going to be past presidents. We're just trying to even just kind of make it within our own communities. Right. But I may not have money. I may not have talent or special skills. So how can I contribute and make a difference in the world around me. You know, that's you. That's a good point, Marcel. Most of us don't have the resources of some of these people I've talked to and the clout, but every person has exactly what it takes to meet someone else's need. I just saw on... Um, on a Facebook post, it was a, a picture of, of um, a man that was handing a bike to a, a boy, probably about 10. And this boy was overcome with receiving this bike and had pulled his shirt up over his face so people wouldn't see him crying. And the story is that this boy had a bike, the old you know, awful bike that didn't work, that didn't have brakes. And he went down the hill and hit this man's car and dented it. 
And, um, you know, of course, anybody would be mad and think, what are you doing? You dumb kid. You hit my butt. You hit my car. Maybe this man was had, was able to to see what this meant to this boy. And a couple of days later, he gives him a new bike. And this boy is overcome. So how do we change the world? One kindness at a time, one act of service at a time. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt said, do what you can with what you have where you are. And so I I love that because it, we don't you have exactly what it takes. I know people that um, you just look across the street and see your neighbor with a yellowed yard, an old person that can't get out in their yard, that's lonely, whose wife has died. And you think, you know, this is my connection. I see a need. I'm going to act. I have a friend that had breast cancer. And um, after she beat it, after a real long, hard fight, she now looks around and finds other women that have been diagnosed with breast cancer, calls them up, asks if she can come to their home, talks to them, lets them see, here I am alive. I'm okay. You can beat this. Gives them gives them suggestions of how they can overcome this and, and gives them hope that, yeah, you can you can do it. Look at me. I'm a walking testament of, of you can overcome cancer. Uh, another friend, somebody I read about, we, well, we saw this during COVID. What happened during COVID? People opened their garages and started their own um, food drives. They, you know, everybody wanted to help and you didn't know what to do. So all of a sudden, they're organizing, making masks. Millions of masks were sewn by average people in their homes that wanted to do something and could could volunteer by sewing a mask. Others would open up their garage and say, okay, on Wednesday, I'm taking some food down to the food bank. Anybody wants to donate, drop it off. Their cars would be, their garage would be full. They would, it, this would happen week after week. So you don't have to have special talents and skills. If you are perceptive and you use your conscience to kind of look inward and think, where do I see a need? My granddaughter just went through a divorce and my grandkids are suffering. How can I fill that gap for her? How can I help with the poverty I see in my area? How can I be kind like this man with the bike to one person? How can I start? All you got to do is begin and it will spread. You do have what it takes to, to make a difference in the world. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because that speaks to most of us ordinary people that, that we're just looking to find our own circle of influence, our, our tribe, if you will, and be able to make a difference in our local context. So in that sense, it, uh, to me, that is really inspiring to know that it's not pie in the sky stuff. I don't have to raise $10 million to go, you know, and, and, serve, uh, you know, uh, overseas, I can do it right here in my own backyard. So find your circle of influence, folks, in your local context, look around your own neighborhood, communities, and, and, and your city. You know, I wish your dad was actually here for this question, because I just wanted to get a sense of what do you and, and, and him ultimately hope readers will learn from live a life in crescendo. What do you think he would say? I hope it would inspire him to realize that their most important work and probably even their most important contributions can still be ahead of them if they so decide that um, no matter if you are um, at a midlife stage where you're struggling and you need to recreate your life, if you're a, a pinnacle of success where you have done well and would like to um, just rest or retire, he always said it's a false dichotomy to decide I'm either going to keep working or retire. He said the third alternative is make a contribution. 
And so if you do decide to retire from work, which which is, you know, a lot of most people do. I think if my dad hadn't passed away, he would have kept working. But, you know, still, it's, you know, if you decide I'm done with my career, still make a contribution. What are you going to do next? You know, life is a mission, he taught, not a career. You get released from a job or a career, it can end. Maybe don't have, um, not able to do that anymore, but you'll never be released from your life's mission. So what is that that you can think of what everyone kind of knows down deep, what what they what talents they have that maybe they could share with somebody else? What is your life mission about? That's what we need to find. Victor Frankl said, we don't invent our missions. We detect them, detect them within ourselves. So how do we detect our mission? And then how do we act upon that? And what a difference it can make in contribution toward others. I know that there are countless Stephen Covey fans out there listening right now. And I promised that we would get into more of the, the personal side of, of your relationship with your dad being the eldest of nine. So let's talk a little bit about that right now. I, I'm really curious to know what your personal relationship with him was, was like, and maybe was there a special moment uh, or your favorite moment with your dad growing up? All nine of us, we did have uh, a good relationship with both of our parents and felt like he described uh, leadership, that leadership is communicating worth and potential so clearly that you're inspired to see it, to see it in yourself. I felt like both my parents communicated that we had worth and potential and acted upon that. And I'm thinking about a story, uh, one of my favorite childhood memories, actually, as when I was 12. And um, my dad invited me to go on a daddy-daughter date to San Francisco. We lived in Provo, Utah, and uh, this was the, the big city, San Francisco. And he was speaking at a convention, and he wanted me to come along. And so most of the fun was planning it ahead, talking about it, anticipating what we were going to do and enjoy together. And so we had decided that after his presentation, uh, that I would meet him at the back of the room and we would leave immediately and go to take the trolley cars to a 12 year old thinking of the trolley, magical trolley cars going through San Francisco up and down those hills was just incredible. And so we talked to, he told me about him and what, and what it was like to be on him. And I just couldn't wait. And then we would take the trolley cars and end up in, in, um, we would go shopping at some of the nice stores. There are these fancy department stores that we, I'd heard about and maybe buy a few school clothes. And so we would go to Chinatown and eat Chinese food. And then we'd take a taxi back to our hotel just in time before the pool closed so we could have a quick swim and enjoy that. And he even had ways of swimming when it was closed. <laughs> he would go, he would go, he would go under the rope and act like he didn't hear the, the guy running back and forth saying, the pool's closed, sir. And he just keeps swimming and do underwater turns when you get to the end. So anyway, we decided to swim and then we would order a hot fudge sundae from room service. Magical to a 12 year old that you could order food like that in a hotel room. And, and then we would stay up and watch the late show. So we had the whole, a whole night planned and we were so excited, especially me anticipating it. So it was going as planned. I was in the back of the room waiting and he was making his way toward me when all of a sudden fate struck <laughs> and he ran into his old friend. He's one of his best friends from college. Uh, who he hadn't seen for years and they embraced each other and he acted so happy to see him and 
I heard the friend say, oh, I came to this talk knowing you were going to be speaking. Uh, my wife and I would love to have you down, take you out on the wharf. We could have seafood tonight and talk and catch up. It's been 10 years. We've got to do it. And uh, he he kind of looked over at me and said, I, I've brought my daughter. We're having a, a daddy-daughter date tonight. And he said, oh, she's welcome to come along. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, I could see my trolley car going down the hill without me. I hated seafood at that point. I wanted Chinese food. But I realized my dad would probably rather be with his friend than a 12-year-old all night. And so I expected the worst. I uh, heard, heard him just say, oh, Bob, that sounds so fun. I'd love to do that with you, but not tonight. Cynthia and I have a special date planned, don't we, honey? And he winked at me, and I saw that trolley car come back into view, and he grabbed my hand, and we were out the door. And I was really choked up about it and said, Dad, are you sure that you want to do this? Don't you want to uh, be with your friend? You, I know how much fun you guys had, and you haven't seen him forever. And he said, oh, are you kidding? I wouldn't miss this for anything. And you'd much rather have Chinese food, wouldn't you? Let's go catch that trolley car. And so that seemingly small experience just taught me so much about my dad's character and what I meant to him. It taught me about trust in relationships, how relationships are, are super important and that I mattered to him, that he put, like he said in his other books, first things first, and that he cared about um, keeping his word to me and and what we had planned. And um, I just uh, it, it just showed so much about his character that he would honor that that promise with me, even though I'm sure he felt a lot of pressure. So uh, my other siblings could point to similar San Francisco type stories where where he had the opportunity to show that, yeah, you matter. I see you and you're important. And that made all the difference in our growing up. That's great. That's great. Cynthia, uh, what's the greatest lesson that your dad taught you? When we would go places with him, I mean, he had some notoriety because of his books and his speaking and people would um, would be around him. And But I, what I think was probably communicated more to me is that he his character was supreme. I mean, he was in his private life was as good as it was probably better than his public life that he taught me um, that even though um, you have many opportunities to to do different things with your life, the most important thing you can do is contribute and serve other people that service and contribution and caring about others is where your legacy is made. And that, that is what's lasting money and possessions and all those other things are fleeting, but you know, your character and what you contribute in others' lives is the most important thing and something that you take with you. Yeah, yeah. What do you miss most about him? Just his fun spontaneity. He was he was really a fun, almost crazy type person sometimes. I mean, he this was before you could you could, weren't able to do this now, but he used to wear masks like in, you know, people would 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 meet him at something and he would get out with one of those with like a, a long mohawk and maybe some buck teeth and, and you know, a, fun, a funny hat or, or his funny shirt or something that he um, he just was a lot of fun. He um, he'd call me whenever he was traveling, uh, going, coming or going. He'd call all of our their nine kids and each of us. I thought he just called me when he was from the airport when he was leaving or coming back, but all of us got calls. To, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? And how are the kids and grandkids? And, you know, we felt he truly cared 
And even though he was um, in demand, he never missed anything that was important. He planned way ahead. He'd ask us, give me your soccer schedule. Give me, when are you going to be in that play? When, when are the dances? When are this and that? And, and he planned ahead and he would, he, he didn't miss things, even though he was probably busier than any other dad I knew. That's the part that strikes me. I, I am astounded by the fact that a man as busy as he was with that kind of schedule had nine kids, and yet he was able to have a relationship with all nine of you. I I can barely make that happen with one child. I mean, I have a nine-year-old now, and I'm like, how am I going to make time for him? I still do. But your dad, this is a testament to your, your dad's commitment to family, family life and, and raising kids the right way. So, uh, wow, what an example. He felt it was important, like like he was saying, to be successful in your most important roles. And most important roles are usually family roles because you'll you'll never get released from those. That's great. Well, we bring it home traditionally here with two questions. And here they are. Personally, Cynthia, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like us to know? You know, I... I, my goal um, in finishing this book after he passed away unexpectedly um, was to be a faithful translator for him of his vision of Live Life in Crescendo. I'm, I'm doing podcasts. I'm trying to um, get it out there because I know um, a lot of people are in despair and have hard times and have hard things. But uh, I think that um, what's pulling on me is that my parents would want me to um, get this message out and to and to do what I can to give people hope and inspire them that their best things are still to come. Mm, I love it. Perfect. And finally, what is that one thing that you would like listeners to walk away with today that's going to make a difference? That uh, life is all about contribution. What you put into others' lives will come back to you. It will bless you as you serve others. One of my favorite quotes is by Pablo Picasso that says, the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. As we give our life away in service to others, um, the book tells a lot of inspiring stories about people that found their own life and their own happiness through service and contribution. And I think that's the main inspiring and hopeful message of this book that you can contribute and make a difference to others if you just start, if you just begin where you are. You don't have to have special skills or a lot of influence. Look around you. Start with your family first and see needs. And then spread that to your neighborhood and your circle of influence soon will enlarge. And pretty soon, just you being an ordinary person has made a real difference in your community and in a lot of people's lives. The book, again, is called Live Life in Crescendo. Your most important work is always ahead of you. Love that title. Cynthia, if people want to connect with you and find out more about you, point them in a couple of places. I'm not, I'm just getting into social media, but I'm on LinkedIn and, I, and I'm on Instagram, Cynthia Covey Haller. You know, they can, they can find this book anywhere. Um, you know, they can just connect with me through those, through those places, Facebook. Perfect. I'll make sure that I have those uh, those links on my show notes as well on my website. It's been a blast. And um, this conversation exceeded my expectations. Uh, you know, I knew I was like in for a, a treat talking to one of Covey's kids. But uh, the, the, the book, knowing that it was his last work and the fact that you're actually involved in it, it's truly inspiring. And I, I just want to thank you for making us better today. 
Marcel, you've got such a great program and you've got a mission about you uh, having me on and, and a lot of your other guests hoping to inspire people to live their best lives. So I appreciate your contribution. Thank you so much. You can join the conversation and comment on this episode with hashtag love in action podcast. And as always, look for my show notes, like I mentioned on my website, marcelschwantis.com. And finally, we're always looking for sponsors to help spread the Love in Action movement globally. If you have an interest, you can reach me on my website or find me on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and watch your business grow.